Okay, so about three months ago, Alan was over here with a bunch of us and says, okay, who's teaching June, July, August? You know, we, he blocked the door. We couldn't get, it, get away. Uh, tried to run, but I couldn't outrun Alan. He's 10 years younger than me. Uh, so I said, on what? He said, anything you want. Really? Anything I want? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. That's a dangerous thing. But So I, I eventually came up with something I knew nothing about. I'd, I don't know. I was reading something, and, and somebody was talking about the millennium, you know, the reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. I don't think I know much about that. So I said, you know, if you don't know something, you teach on it. That's the way you do it. So that's what I'm going to do. Millennial. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read an article about the millennials. They're now some of them middle managers, and they just can't stand those Gen Z kids. Those Gen Z kids think they know everything, you know. <laughs> so here's the definition from the Britannica. Millennialism is the belief expressed in the book of Revelation that Christ will establish a thousand-year reign of the saints on earth, the millennium, before the last judgment. More broadly defined, it is a cross-cultural concept grounded in the expectation of a time and supernatural peace and abundance on earth. It's not just Christianity, as we'll see, that have some kind of millennialism in their religious tradition. So anyway, last November, my wife and I took a trip out east, and I stopped in Blackwater, Missouri, where my grandparents had a farm, and I remember visiting them when I was a kid, and we would get ready to go to this church. That's the Old Main Church of Christ, just off Highway 70, uh, uh, just north of the town of Blackwater, which is a beautiful, historic town. We actually went in the town hall, and the mayor was coming in, and Asked him about where this farm was my grandparents owned decades ago, and he knew exactly where it was, and he knew where the some of the graves of my ancestors were. In fact, these are my great grandparents, and I have a copy. This is Samuel Yardley Thornton. I have a copy of his diary. Uh, how many times in that diary did he say they hooked the horse up to the buggy and they went down through the terrible winter storm, blah blah blah, to this old Indian Church of Christ where they, uh, you know, worship. <coughs> Anyway, I, I got on the internet, this church is quite active today, and they have a vegetable ministry. I never heard of a vegetable ministry. I mean, kind of like I never heard of a SWAT team ministry until Patrick Mead was here. <coughs> but they, they grow vegetables and they give them to the poor. Anyway, um, I remember visiting my grandparents when I was a kid back in the 50s, yeah, probably late 50s, and we would get ready on Sunday morning to go to church, probably that one, and they wouldn't go. Grandpa would sit in his corner and his, his, his Bible, and Grandma would sit in her corner with her Bible, and Dad, welcome, Grandpa and Grandma aren't going to church. Well, now I could have misunderstood it all these decades later, maybe I didn't know, you know, but from what I understand, <coughs> they couldn't, have, couldn't agree with the people down there at that church on this millennial, millennialism. And they couldn't agree with each other either. So one said in his corner, the other said in their, her corner on Sunday morning reading their Bible and they wouldn't go to church. I remember that for some reason. And then I got to thinking, you know, I don't know hardly anything about this. Why don't I know anything about this? I mean, I've been in 
brought up in the Church of the Christ. <clears throat> My dad was a Church of Christ master for 67 years, wouldn't quit. And I never heard one word about this millennialism stuff. And then is it taught in our Christian school? I went to the same Christian high school that Jim McKenzie went to, uh, one of our former ministers. Never heard anything about it. Took Bible class every day, all through high school. I went to Harding University, took Bible every semester. I never heard anything about it. How come I'm so ignorant about this issue? So I thought, I better teach a class on this, because <laughs> I don't know anything about it. And, you know, since I'm approaching my late 40s now, I think I should know something about millennialism. And I know, you know, just by being a mathematician, uh, there's many calculations trying to calculate all these years for the tribulation, the millennium, and all this kind of stuff. Wow, I'm taking some pretty high level math. I can't figure that stuff out. Uh, and that's not my goal here either. My goal for this class is, how do, we, how do we come to the state we're in as far as the different churches in America believing different things on the millennium? So that's, that's more my goal than trying to figure out or decipher Daniel and Revelation and calculating all these dates where all this stuff is going to happen. That, that's not my goal. And my goal is not to uh, push any particular millennial view I don't care what, what you believe on it. It's not as, like Scott's, uh, one of Scott's slides last week, it's not a salvation issue. And I was just, I was going to use Donna, Donna Reeves' uh, expression, and Phil just could use the same thing. Some of us are pan-millennialists, meaning it'll all work out in the end. We don't have to worry about it. Um, so what I first did was, like anybody else, any self-respecting American would do, they go, the internet, what's this millennialism stuff? Go to the internet. And the first thing that popped up was this, what is the millennium? Seven answers to seven questions by David Jeremiah. Never heard of the guy. And you have, okay. So first thing I read is, can you imagine a world with no fear, no disease, no pain, no worry? That is what the millennial kingdom will be like. For a thousand years, there'll be peace. We will live in a perfect world with Christ as our ruler. It is something we can look forward to when our lives are difficult and when our world is filled with chaos, immorality, and despair. Well, that is home. Uh, as we go through hard times, we must remember our future with Christ. Here is a brief look at what the millennial kingdom will be like. So here, see, my first stab at what the millennium is all about. And he goes on to say the millennium will be Christ's a thousand-year reign as king following the tribulation. David will be his vice president. That, that, what? I didn't get that. And will sit on the throne with him. They will rule the world in righteousness and godliness. There will still be sin in the millennium, but be dealt with immediately. So I'm going through my mind. Where's those Bible passages? Anyway, maybe we'll find out. <clears throat> and he continues, Mr. Jeremiah, lifetimes will be extended. There will be peace in the animal kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Ah, I remember that verse somewhere in Isaiah. 
and there will be peace among mankind. All the hostility that's been a part of our world will be gone. That sounds great. At the moment of the rapture, every believer who is alive or deceased will be taken into heaven. We will remain there for about seven years while the tribulation is happening on earth. The marriage supper of the Lamb and judgment seat of Christ will take place during this time. Once the tribulation is over, Christ will return to earth. You know, I kind of heard some of this kind of stuff, maybe by accident, not from the pulpit, from my dad, not at Harding University, you know, but some of this is very foreign when I first read this stuff. And I'm wondering, where's he getting all this stuff? Maybe my Bible knowledge isn't as good as I had hoped. Uh, <clears throat> when Christ returns to defeat the armies of the world that have formed against him, we will return with him. After the battle is over, the Bible says that all Christians are going to be part of the government, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, Revelation 20 and 4. We will stay on earth with him, and we will rule and reign with him throughout the whole world. So this, this is all from David Jeremiah. <clears throat> okay, David Jeremiah is a contemporary of ours. He didn't live 500 years ago. And in his book, he says he answers seven questions. So he, some of you have heard of him, maybe you've read his book, I don't know. What is the millennium? Will believers today be on earth for the millennium? Will there be conflict in the millennium? Will there be death during the millennium? Will there be sin during the millennium? What is the purpose of the millennium? What is the purpose of the book of Revelation? Well, I don't know, but I heard uh, Patrick Bede say one time, he summed it up. The book of Revelation can be summed up like this. Uh, God has a team. The devil has a team. God's team wins. Pick a team. <laughs> wow. And I didn't have to take that 16-week course in Revelation, which I don't remember anything about. I could have just summed it up like he did in four sentences. <laughs> so, what is the millennium? The views of Mr. Jeremiah are just one of many variations of the millennium that's popular today. And we're talking to Phil beforehand. He said, some people that I guess you're in contact with or some churches, this is a very important topic. I don't remember Eddie ever preaching a sermon about this either. Do you? When you grew up, if you grew up in the Church of Christ, did you have the same experience I had? Yes. Millennium? I don't know. Uh, and back through time, which centered around the question, is it already here or is it coming? And, and depending on which is the answer, when and how is the millennium coming? Well, I noticed there's thousands of books out there. You ever notice on any particular topic in the Bible, the Bible might have a few verses about it, but there's thousands of books written about it. How, how do we expand so well? It's like our uh, Thursday morning men's Bible study, <coughs> online Bible study. Uh, we, we read other commentators. We're going through the book of Luke right now, but we read other commentators to get their ideas and opinions. They come up with some really good stuff. Stuff that you know, we individually wouldn't even think about. Uh, but there's thousands of books out there, and I bet you they don't all agree with each other. I'm wondering. 
if everybody reads, <laughs> if everybody reads the Bible, aren't isn't everybody going to come away with the same opinion on something? No. <laughs> no. Well, there's four major views today: uh, dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Peggy Babcock three times. See if that doesn't twist your tongue. Uh, what is pre, post, and A? Well, pre means Christ is supposed to return before the thousand-year reign. Post is after the thousand years, and A means there is no thousand-year reign. It's just uh, a metaphor. <clears throat> but I got this out of blueletterbible.org. I've been studying this and studying this. I can't figure it out too well. Maybe you, some of you have studied it more than I. But somewhere along the line, and this is what I want to go through, I want to start from early church history and come all the way through the Roman Empire and Middle Ages to the Reformation and then after the Reformation and how all these beliefs came about and how often groups separated themselves because of millennialism, you know, from everybody else. And of course, the Catholic Church declared a lot of them as heretics uh, early on. But uh, anyway, there's, according to this view, there's seven different dispensations, innocence where before even Adam sinned, uh, conscience uh, before the flood, human government after the flood and before Abraham, the promise that was given to Abraham uh, the law, you know, Moses and the Ten Commandments, grace, the establishment of the church through Revelation 20 and 3, and then the millennial kingdom, which is the seventh dispensation or period of time. Uh, this this premillennialism, you can see up here, Christ is supposed to descend, uh, the second coming of Christ, another name for that is the perusia, before the millennium. So this is premillennialism. But you can, you can see at different points, uh, the righteous dead are raised, and then the rapture occurs, Christ descends, there's a tribulation, there's the reign of the Antichrist. This one, this one really stuck out to me, that the whole uh, Jewish religion and rituals and priesthood and sacrifices and the temples, all that's going to be restored during this period of time before the thousand year reign. Another thing that's kind of interesting to me was the righteous dead raised here, but those saints that died during the tribulation, I guess, in the Old Testament believers were raised here. I, I don't understand all that. Somebody's gonna have to help me out on it. But then there's a thousand year reign where Satan is bound and then Satan's loosed for a time and then the wicked are judged and then people enter the, their eternal state. I guess this one here is what I, I can understand that because I can still remember in high school uh, us, well they didn't call them seniors, I went to school in Canada, 12th graders, they, you know the 67 war over in Palestine where we made all, all kinds of jokes about how the Egyptians had to build their tanks with four gears reverse and one forward because the Israelis were just clobbering them all that kind of stuff. I remember uh, you know that that 67 war where the Arabs were trying to 
dislodge, I guess, Israel from Palestine. Of course, they'd only been there 19 years, right? They started in 1948. But in our in our men's study on uh, on in Luke, Larry, we were talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and and Jesus approached Jerusalem and he wept and he he predicted predicted God caused it to happen, but the destruction of Jerusalem because they didn't um, accept his uh, visitation. That was the word he used in, in my scripture. And the destruction of Jerusalem was kind of symbolic of doing away with a whole Jewish ritual, the temple, priesthood, sacrifice, and all that kind of stuff. Well, here I come to this theory that says all that's going to be restored. And of course, like Jess said last week, you know, there's a moss sitting right on the Dome of the Rock. Good luck getting that out of there <laughs> so you can restore the temple. Uh, so at the last uh, Wednesday night of uh, this month, we'll come back to this and look at the pros and cons for this view. I'm not pushing this view or not pushing this view. I don't know. Maybe some of that's good or correct. I don't know. But that differs a little bit from the traditional historical premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism was uh, had come come about after the historical version, which is a lot of the same stuff. There's a great apostasy where the church just falls away from Christ in mass. Um, the rapture occurs and Christ descends right before the thousand year reign. There's still this temple is rebuilt, the priesthood sacrifices, those things restored, similar to the dispensational premillennialism. Uh, but the, the dead are raised at different times in this version. And then we got the uh, Battle of Gog and Magog. That I remember that from reading Hal Lindsey's books in the 70s. Something you may have too. Uh, and then the wicked dead are, are raised. And then uh, the great judgment and eternal state. This has been the more historical, hyster historical, <laughs> sorry, yeah. premillennialism. I just I don't know to what extent this is right or wrong, uh, and then postmillennialism. Post means Christ returns after the thousand-year reign, but in this case, the thousand-year reign is not literal; it's just a period of time. But uh, it says in this view, the world will become better. The gospel increases and advances and gradually. Christianization of the world takes place. I'm looking at the world today and thinking, I don't know about that. And then there was a verse in Luke we were studying. Uh, Jesus said, when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Remember him saying that, Larry, in our Luke study? So, I don't know. I'm going to have to study that more. Uh, and then the last one, amillennialism. Here we are in the present age. Uh, we're in the millennium right now. Millennium doesn't mean a thousand years. It just means a whole bunch of years, which I can buy because I remember some of Patrick Mead's lessons. He was talking about that. Uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he was talking about the word thousand in Revelation specifically and said that just means a whole bunch. You know, it doesn't mean specifically a thousand. So maybe. Uh, and so we are in the millennium, supposedly, and then Christ returns all of a sudden, and that's when the resurrection occurs uh, of the righteous and the wicked. 
and final judgment takes place, and then the eternal state of the wicked and the righteous. So there's the four major millennial views. Uh, I know I know which churches now, after doing the research, which churches uh, take which view, interestingly enough. And you probably already guessed, if you didn't uh, hear too many sermons or lessons on millennialism, you probably probably guess this is what the churches of Christ basically follow or believe. It's not important enough to even mention it, because it's never mentioned my Christian high school, it wasn't mentioned at Harding University. My dad, who I listened to preach for six years, Church of Christ preacher, never mentioned it once. Eddie hasn't mentioned it. Uh, where are you, Eddie? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. What, what consummation? Consummation. <laughs> the, the consummation of the you know Christ's return, and that's why the way I take that. Okay. Consummated, completed. The Perusia, the second coming of Christ. Whereas I know there's people that don't even believe the that the second coming of Christ is going to happen, or there is such a thing. <clears throat> Um, okay, so in the definition by the Britannica, it said cross-cultural. There are forms of millennialism and Judaism, <laughs> Islam, Buddhism, and Christianity. And this particular quote right here, which says, millennialism, it must be stressed, is far more than simply believing that the millennium is near. It is a comprehensive way of looking at human history and an integrated system of salvation. It is a type of eschatology, study of last things, a term derived from Greek for doctrine of the last things or end times and used to refer broadly to people's ideas about the final events in individual human lives as well as the collective end of human history. And this was taken from the millennium uh, world of early Mormonism. Mormonism, and I read what Seventh-day Adventists believe about the millennium too. So I was kind of surprised to find out it wasn't just uh, Christianity, but a lot of these religions have similar types of stories about the a thousand-year reign or an apocalyptic event or some period of just wonderful existence before the final judgment. You know, that's that's common amongst a lot of uh, religions, not just Christianity. So millennialism, uh, a belief in end times when God judges the living and the dead, God's goodness reconciles with evil in this world. And a one world word that keeps coming up and everything I look at is it's always imminent, always imminent. The idea has great appeal in every age. And I'm, I'm thinking through Christianity, 2,000 years, a coming new world into existing institutions of power. Yeah, I'm for that. <laughs> Somewhat revolutionary. Yes, I could do that, in that it threatens those in authority. But the fact that, and we'll see as we go through these next four weeks, the history of millennialism right from the early church on, you see patterns of things that repeat over and over and over again. Uh, not just in our time, but in every time, which is kind of interesting. 
And who wouldn't want to believe what uh, Mr. Jeremiah said at the beginning? It gives hope to the suffering. There's a lot of suffering going on in the world. Um, to some, it's a revolt against the present order and, a, and an attempt to bring about the promised kingdom of peace. That's another thing I think we'll see as we go through the study. The history of millennialism is group after group after group throughout history want to force the coming of Christ to set up this kingdom. They're not just going to be patient and wait for it. They're trying to be proactive and force this to happen as if somebody could force God to, you know, set up a thousand-year reign on earth or whatever. But people have weird, weird beliefs uh, driven by a sense of imminence as it's coming soon in our lifetime. And this is another pattern we're going to see over and over and over. Everybody believed that Christ was going to return in their lifetime, either to set up a thousand-year reign or, or not, um, or to pass judgment on the righteous or the wicked. <clears throat> There's something about human nature that thinks that the time I am living in is the most important time in history. Everything else is... And, in, and beyond that, the Bible only points to my time in history. My time is the most important time in history. I see this, saw this over and over and over and over throughout uh, my study of millennium through the ages, millennialism through the ages. Yet Jesus said even he didn't know when he would return. So this is one reason why uh, there, there's all kinds of mathematical things you can come up with in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Revelation. Is there enough in there to predict when Jesus is going to return? Well, if there was, I would think Jesus could have figured it out. He doesn't have any math degrees, but I'll bet <laughs> he's better than Einstein at math. So if Jesus couldn't figure it out, I mean, this, this may be a lazy thought on my part, but why should I spend hours and hours trying to calculate all this stuff out and try to figure all this stuff out. Jesus could have done it if it's, if it's figure-outable, I'm thinking. I actually fought, found this on the internet. Get ready for Jesus. The rapture is April 23rd. Now, it doesn't have a year in there, so I don't know if we missed it. <laughs> We're the ones left behind? <laughs> I don't know. I got a little scared there. Was this last April 23rd? can't remember what I was doing. I probably slept in to 5 o'clock. Sometimes I do that. <laughs> well, if you go to bed at 7.30, you can't sleep past 5 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, Matthew 24, 36, what's that say? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be coming uh, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be sitting in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. This kind of sounds like the word rapture. I couldn't find the word rapture in the Bible, but it sounds like a rapture, you know. Uh, but the main point here is 
Jesus doesn't even know when he's returning. Only the Father. If it was possible, just search the Bible and figure out when Jesus is going to return, like April 23rd, or the rapture was going to happen at a specific date, I think he would have been able to figure it out. So I, I'm not too interested in doing all those mathematical calculations because I think it's a waste of time. <coughs> like I said, I mean, that's my lazy point of view. But uh, Here's a question. Does the Bible speak of future events? Scott? Yes. We just got through one of the best series of lessons on Wednesday night I've heard in years. That, that was really, really good. He does speak about future events. Name one. The main one is the second coming of Christ, right? I think. Uh, but there, there may be others. I hadn't really thought about it a whole lot, but at least the Perusia, the second coming of Christ, I think is clearly stated in Thessalonians and other passages that uh, Christ is returning. Uh, is there enough to accurately predict the second coming of Christ? Well, obviously not, because Christ probably knows the scriptures better than all of us put together, and if he doesn't know, then he couldn't put it together by reading the scriptures, and I'm sure he had it memorized. <laughs> well, he also has direct conversations with his father, so his father yes, hadn't told him. Yes, and his father hasn't told him. Well, I kind of, kind of, kind of picture this as he's sitting at the right hand of God, and one, one day just time go yeah. oh, oh okay <laughs> that's, about time. I, that's hard to understand Scott because Jesus is God as well but here here's one example where God the Father knows something God the Son doesn't doesn't know it's hard it's hard to understand some of this stuff but <clears throat> we press on us mere humans uh, apocalyptic literature in the Bible relating to or predicting the end of the world the main books are Daniel and Revelation. Uh, here's what the Britannica So you don't have to work with just Wikipedia anymore. There's a lot of stuff out there from the Britannica, probably a step above Wikipedia for getting definitions and other kind of information, <coughs> my opinion. But uh, literary genre that foretells supernaturally inspired cataclysmic events that will transpire at the end of the world, a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition Apocalyptic literature is characteristically pseudonymous, pseudonymous meaning fictitious name, writing, uh, the writer is a, uh, under, writing under pen name or something. It takes narrative form, employs esoteric, as a math major, I didn't know what this meant, I had to put the, you know, look it up, and esoteric, what on earth? Intended for or understood by only a small group, especially one with specialized knowledge or interests. Synonym is mysterious. Now, if you've been sitting in Phil's class the last few weeks on how to do a small group leadership, you understand you don't ask those kind of questions. We're supposed to take special knowledge because you don't want to embarrass somebody, you know. So that's esoteric. Did you use that in your class? Did you use that word? Good, because I didn't know what it meant to look it up here. <laughs> uh, expresses a pessimistic view of the present, treats the final events as imminent in our lifetimes. It's, you know, I'm thinking of somebody who died recently, and the person that preached the funeral said this person was prepared. I mean, it, I think it's good for us to think of Christ's returning, return as imminent because that makes us prepared. And how many parables address that issue? Be prepared. You don't know when it's going to happen. 
So thinking of it as imminent is probably a good idea. We don't know. Uh, <clears throat> no matter how often apocalyptic beliefs have proved wrong, and no matter how much chaos has been caused by millennial efforts to establish God's kingdom on earth, apocalyptic expectations are repeatedly revived. And we're going to walk through this throughout history and see a lot of these movements. Uh, as soon as one prediction is almost like climate alarmists. I was reading this article the last 50 years, all the climate predictions, and not a single one of them has ever come true. Well, so far, all these predictions throughout the last 2,000 years of Christ's return, none of them have come true unless we missed it, and it was April 23rd. <laughs> it April 23rd. Or it could be the next April 23rd. <clears throat> Why? Why do people repeatedly make the same error? I remember I was a member of the Hebrew Barkaway Church of Christ down in, in uh, Dallas, where we moved up here years ago. And uh, there was some guy, I forget his name, he's up in Washington State. He was talking about all this kind of stuff, and Christ's return was imminent. And a few of the guys got together, and they were going to go up there and listen to the guy. And he said, Ask me if I want to go. I said, No. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Nobody knows when Christ is going to return. This is stupid. <laughs> I probably didn't use the right words. Uh, anyway, I didn't go. They went. Six months later, one of, the, one of the guys got up and apologized that they'd gone up there and fell for this nonsense because the guy turned out to be a reprobate and he was uh, in jail for doing whatever. But anyway, it's human nature. We want something like this. No suffering, no pain, a thousand-year reign of Christ. That sure beats the leadership in our countries that we have right now. Who doesn't want that? You know, so maybe, maybe that's part of it. It's just human nature. We, we want it so badly. We want Christ to return and so badly, Maranatha, that we do crazy things like predict April 23rd and then that goes by without it happening. I, I don't know why. But I did find out, and this is just a couple of three examples the concept of pushing millennial views and separating yourself because Christ is going to return, all this kind of stuff, is result in the deaths of millions of people. Just an idea. It's resulted in the death of millions of people. Um, <clears throat> some of them were the Jewish revolts against Rome in the first and second century. It resulted in several hundred thousand deaths, probably at least a million. And I got to thinking, the Jews believed in millennial stuff and apocalyptic stuff. Well, here's this British historian, Norman Cohn, who says that the messianic hope of the Jews was the oldest form of millenarianism, which is a synonym for millennialism, uh, known to us. He cited Daniel 7 as a millenarian manifesto, which foretells how Israel will overthrow the Greek empire and therefore dominate the whole world for all eternity. <coughs> Uh, the Syriac Apocalypse of Baruch, or Second Baruch, tells how the Messiah will shortly break the power of Rome, exterminate all nations which have ever ruled over Israel, and establish a kingdom which will last to the end of the world. And then finally, he even claimed that the party of the zealots who precipitated the revolts against Rome was a truly millenarian movement convinced of the imminent coming of a supernatural Messiah. So, the Jews during the Jewish wars that were killed, were they killed because of the zealots' beliefs of uh, um, millennialism type of idea? 
he seems to think so. In 66 AD, common era, a band of Jews revolted against Roman rule. And in 70, Romans stormed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple complex, leaving only the western portion of the wall, the Jews' holiest shrine for now, anyway. And then 73 CE, about a half million Jews were killed by the Romans. And then in 132 CE, Jews made a second attempt at revolt, and another half million Jews were killed. So, one million. <laughs> Jewish political state ceased to exist. The Romans exact complete control, and the Jewish religion survived, uh, though many were driven into exile, which was called the diaspora, you know, where they were spread all over the place. Uh, so, if what Cohen says is true, the Zealots had a millennial type of view, that concept and then pushing it resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, oh, this was interesting. Got this from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The idea of the millennium is older than the Christian church for the belief in a period of 1,000 years at the end of time as a preliminary to the resurrection of the dead was held in Parseism. Well, Parsees were Persians who were Zoroastrian. And I read about that, and they did have a millennial belief, which is kind of interesting. They were pushed out of Iran by the Muslims in the 7th century, and there's still remnants of them today in Western India. But you remember in Isaiah 45 where he, he prophesied that King Cyrus was going to uh, uh, step in and, and the Jews that were exiled into Babylon would be restored. I think that's the only prophecy in the Bible where a specific person's name is mentioned. And sure enough, several hundred years later after Isaiah, King Cyrus did write an edict on one of those little thingies. I was in the British Museum earlier this year, and I was looking for the exact one that he, he had his edict on that's mentioned in the Bible that to let people go back to Mesopotamia. But this was a different one. <coughs> so I, I got a picture of it. It was something else, but it's only about that long, that big around. King Cyrus the Persian. But anyway, the Persians had a millennial belief um, with their religion of Zoroastrian uh, way before uh, Christians did. Where they got that, I have no idea, but I thought that was interesting. And then in Jewish literature, uh, there's several references that infer that there was a millennial belief or an apocalyptic belief in Baruch and Second Esdras. Uh, and they believe, you know, they regarded the Messianic rule as a period of the fulfillment of the prophecies while they saw it in the time of the subjugation of nations. But, the fact that the Jews had some sort of millennial or apocalyptic belief is, is uh, supported by some of these references. <clears throat> and they suffered for it. According to the, that one report, at least a million Jews died as a result. <clears throat> and then found this. This is, this is way worse. I don't know much about China. It's over there somewhere. Or, or over there, or depends which way you go around the world. Uh, this guy in 1850 to 64, and what was going on in the 1860s over here in the United States? The Silver War. The war over silver. No, the Civil War, and who was it? Was it you, Larry, who was mentioning there was 600,000 deaths in that war? 
Well, this one had 20 million deaths. Uh, our war was a drop in the bucket compared to this thing, but uh, there was a rebellion. Like These were Taiping. It's called the Taiping Rebellion because the people called themselves Taiping. <coughs> but the leader, Hong Chuang Shuquan, Hong Shuquan, or however you say that, he was convinced he was the younger brother of Jesus, and he saw uh, it was his duty to free China from the Manchu rule. And he had these millennial beliefs, and he did what so many other people throughout history did. They gathered a following, and they separated themselves from society, and they believed that the Christ's return was imminent, etc., etc. Anyway, he led a large-scale rebellion against the Qing dynasty, he preached the brotherhood and sisterhood of all people under God with common property, and he created a fiercely disciplined army of more than a million men and women who were considered equals. The so women fought, fought back there in China in the 1800s. They captured Nanjing in 1853 and renamed it Tianjin, heavenly capital. Their attempts to capture Beijing failed, but an expedition into the upper Yangtze River Valley scored many victories. <clears throat> and there's, there's where Nanjing is. They tried to take Beijing, it didn't work, with a million, a million soldiers, <clears throat> common folk. Uh, from what I read, it was a highly, highly disciplined army <laughs> that he created. Anyway, Hong's version of Christianity alienated both Western missionaries and the Chinese elite. The leadership descended into power struggles that left Hong without competent help. Doesn't that happen so much? You read about this up-and-coming organization or entity or government or whatever, and it doesn't take long before there's inner power struggles and squabbles and the whole thing falls apart. Well, I guess that's what happened to them. In 1860, an attempt to take Shanghai was repelled by U.S. and British-led forces, and by, and what were we doing over there? We had a civil war over here. We had extra men to go over there? I just thought of that. And by 1862, Chinese forces under Xinguafan had surrounded Nanjing. The city fell in 1864, but almost 100,000 of the Taiping followers preferred death to capture. The rebellion ravaged 17 provinces, took some 20 million lives, and left the Qing dynasty ineffective. And get this, I thought this was kind of funny. Both the Chinese Communists, that's mainland China, and the Chinese Nationalists, that's tai, Taiwan, traced their origin to the Taipings. These were the rebels. And so everybody wants to be associated all these years later with the rebels, I guess. But that's both, that's funny, both of them. Both of them that are loggerheads today <laughs> claim their origin by uh, to the Taipings. But 20 million people dead. And who doesn't remember this? Keith and Sharon were 29 years old when this happened. <laughs> now look how old they are. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> now you remember this, the Jonestown Massacre? We're the same age. You didn't have to say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just reading. That happened on November 18th, 1978. 918 people were killed, including a congressman. You all remember this, right? Jonestown Massacre. They were a millennial group. In fact, it says an apocalyptic cult, 900 dead. Remember the Jonestown Massacre 40 years on. 
example three of, and many people have died. And as we go through his history from the early church all the way up to now, we see over and over and over groups like similar to these three where many people have died over an idea. Of course, most people die over an idea, right? Most people have died in wars because of some idea. You know, may have been a good idea or a bad idea, I don't know, but we die over ideas. <clears throat> Each generation has their own devotees seeking the kingdom on earth. And is it any less, the, any less of a movement today in our time than previous times in history? I don't know. We'll, in these next four weeks, when I look at the history of all this stuff, Maybe we can uh, answer that more clearly later on. Obviously, among us, uh, I guess it's it's not a big deal. But like Phil said, uh, with a lot of churches, this millennial idea, the reign of Christ for a thousand years, the rapture, the, all the all this stuff is extremely important, very important. Uh, so. How many generations is that? If each generation has their own devotees to this, seeking the kingdom on earth, how many generations is that? Well, if we just go back 2,000 years, if a generation is 33 and a third years, three times 20 is 60 generations. If it's every 25 years, four times 20 is 80 generations. So maybe between 60 and 80 generations since, since year zero. <laughs> Did I get that right, Larry? <laughs> Every generation has its own devotees. And what, what I've discovered, like I said before, it's irresistible to associate current historical events in every age to the imminent apocalypse. Those people that lived in 500 will find out, and 800, and 1,000, and 1,500, and you know, whatever. Their time on earth, there was terrible things going on, great things going on. Their time on earth was the most important time on earth up to that point. And we all seem to feel like that. Our time on earth is, is the most important time on earth, you know. Is that true? I don't know. Apocalyptic messages are seen in every incident or coincidence. It's like seeing a picture of Christ on a toast in the morning. And you sell that for $100,000. When did that happen? <laughs> a few years ago. End <laughs> uh, time promises free believers from fear of authorities and liberates them from all earthly inhibitions. Now, I think we'll see this as we look at the history. The people that led these movements, they didn't fear the governing authorities at the time. Some of them lived to tell about it, and some of them didn't. But it uh, frees us from earthly inhibitions, because we're about to be raptured, right? Any religious movement that hopes for salvation that is collective, okay, to be enjoyed by all faithful as a group, terrestrial, to be realized here on earth, that's an important point, imminent, to come soon and suddenly, and I, as I added before, in our lifetimes, total to transform life on earth completely, 
and miraculous to be brought about by or with the help of supernatural agencies. Millennialism defined. Very interesting concepts. We'll see this occurring throughout history, these, these same ideas. So, where did the idea come from, millennialism? Can you all come back next week? <laughs> this is where I'm going to stop. I've never had a complaint in my whole life that my class ended early. <laughs> so go forth from here. I'll see you next week, hopefully. We'll start in here next week. Yes. Oh, anybody want to say anything? Daddy. <laughs> I always tell people when they ask me about this, don't worry about the end time, worry about your end time. Be ready. Betty, we've been in the same life group for. 100 years. Several years. <laughs> many, many years. She is always the words of wisdom in our life group. I bet you all, well, you are in about three or five different life groups. I bet you all have her in your life groups, too. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. Anybody else? I have a thought. Okay. And this is something that I've told other people who have talked about. You know, we're in the end times. You know, yep. all that stuff. We've been in the end times since Jesus ascended into heaven. We've been living it since then. So... When it ends, really, it ends when God gets out to That's right. And Jesus himself can't figure it out by reading Daniel 2 or 7 or Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else want to say something? Larry? Yeah. It's interesting that Alexander Campbell, one of the pioneers of uh, the restoration of Christ in the 1830s, um, edited a series of books called the Millennial Harbinger. Yep. And he believes that we are entering the millennium because America was a young country that's going to bring freedom and liberty and life to the world. And because there was this great optimism about the future of America. And then he and others had ushered in this idea of uh, the restoration of pure New Testament Christianity to get away from all the sectarianism of Catholicism in Europe and so forth. And so we were entering this new age, millennial age. Yeah. Would you think he'd roll over in his grave today if you read some of the newspapers we have out and what's going on in the United States, this new wonderful country? <laughs> I can't see you. Kathy, I think. I got this very Sunday school teacher. It's one Sunday talk for the millennial. She taught premillennialism. I went home and told my parents. But Jesus had told me, I don't think she taught again. <laughs> really? <laughs> there was a history in the Church of Christ of premillennialism. If you look up Robert Henry Bull, B O L L, read about his life. It was in the early 1900s. You can find out what happened. <laughs> okay, Robert Bull. And you just mentioned. Thomas Campbell, or not Thomas, uh, Alexander Campbell, probably Thomas and Alexander Campbell. Yeah, there's a long time ago history of that, but in my history, which is right. 30, 40 years maybe, 
I haven't heard it. Yeah, but I'm you know. pretty dead on the earth because I went to prison my school in college and never heard anything. Yeah. Except that one fifth grade teacher, she didn't teach anymore after that. Right. That tells you something. I knew what it was because there was discussion, yeah. you know, about, okay, they were bringing them with me. <laughs> so, I mean, there is some history. So, well, I covet everybody's understanding because, like I said, when I started out, I had to look up to see whether there's two ends or one end in the word. Right. You know. So. Well, and apparently it was in the like the directory of the Churches of Christ to say whether they're premillennial or not uh, until the year 2000. Yeah. And then that's pretty much eliminated. Okay. Anybody else? Keith? Uh, does anybody know Max King? Anybody here? Oh, I'm Max here. King. Who? Larry. Okay. Well, he was here. Uh, for Well, his son was here, first of all, Ken King. They had a program going called Realized Eschatology. So there's another one you can put on your list. <laughs> And Tim King, his father was getting old, and so Tim King kind of took over that philosophy. It's been a long time since I've read the books. I have them, but Tim King, his father, Max, and Max eventually came out here, and uh, he kind of disappeared from here. He was told he wouldn't preach that here, but he's a pretty good preacher. But if you want to look it up, it's pretty easy to look so it up on the internet. There are pockets in the past, in the history of the Churches of Christ, of some kind of millennialism, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But it's Which not makes a salvation sense. issue. But it's not a salvation issue, that's true. So, pan-millennialism, it'll all work out in the end. What do you mean? When we get to thank over we start hurting everybody. Yes, yes. That, 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 but this itself, <laughs> when you believe one or the others. Yeah. Probably back in the 1800s, yeah, well, especially. <laughs> yeah, but you know, back when you were first well, baptized. The church going to, you know, and it separated some churches to uh, what angle they took at. Well, it must have been an issue with my grandparents, you know, back in the 50s and the old Lamine Church of Christ because they couldn't agree with what was the belief down there. So. Yeah, there is some history, but in the last few decades, have we heard anything in the Churches of Christ that we're aware of about millennialism, or is it even mentioned? I can't think of anything, but... Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know to what extent any, any or all of those might have truths in them. I mean, they're, they're differing points of view. They can't all be right. To what extent they're right or wrong, I don't know. I'm not pushing them, and I'm not not pushing them. But I, I'm interested to see where these ideas came from, and the, what the, as much as I can, go back to early church history and try to follow them up to this point in time. How did we get to these beliefs? Okay, we'll see you next week then. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. 
like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.